welcome back to Voices of Construction, a podcast sponsored by TouchPlan. This is Noah Baker. I'm coming back at you with a new episode. Typically, I uh, record these intros a day or two after um, our our interviews and our recordings. Um, I'm actually recording this one directly after just because I am so excited about getting this out there for you guys to listen to. Um, on today's podcast, we have Martha McGowan, um, who is a senior PM with BAM Construction, um, actually located and working on projects throughout the past two or three years in Antarctica for a bass research facility studying Antarctica and climate change. I originally um, saw this um, in a video for the most extreme construction projects in the world. Um, I made it my sole mission to, to hunt poor Martha down here, um, reached out to her, finally got in touch, couldn't ask for a sweeter, um, more willing to help type person to have on this podcast. Um, we talk a little about all of the different logistical nightmares and, and things that go on and when you're working in Antarctica shipping cranes, backhoes, front loaders, all the way from the UK. Um, Things from leopard seals and orcas and diving uh, to rebuild the wharf. This team in Antarctica is really working to to better our understanding of climate change and and how humans are affecting the world. So I I really think this is a a very important mission that they're on and they're doing a great job while having a lot of hardships and, and being away from their families for six months. But enjoy hearing about one of the, the most extreme project locations in the world, if not the most extreme one. Um, and I know you'll enjoy hearing Martha talk about her project. You can hear the passion in her voice. And from my point of view, I could see it. Um, really just had an absolutely amazing time. And I can't wait for you guys to, to hear this one. Again, this is Martha with BAM talking about her project in Antarctica. Thanks so much and have fun with it. Awesome. I think we're all set. Well, welcome, Martha. How are you? Hi, Noah. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, great to be able to join you today um, from England. Uh, Looking forward to speaking to you more about our projects in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just for for everyone listening, a little background which will be in the intro that I'll record and they'll get a little background story on you, Martha. But I think I saw your video where you were interviewed labeled the world's most extreme construction environment or something like that, probably seven months ago. And ever since then, I started stalking you on social media and and hoping and praying we could get you on the podcast because immediately when I saw that and saw that project and everything you guys talked about, which we'll definitely dive into, I was wildly intrigued and it it is exactly the type of conversation we want on this podcast and things that people don't necessarily hear about all the time. Um, I don't know if, if you are getting tired of talking about this epic project because it seems as if everyone in the world is deeply interested in it, but um, (laughs) why don't we just start off with, I know we got the chance to speak on Friday and um, I know you were at University of Edinburgh um, working in engineering and all that stuff. Do you want to just kind of kick it off with a little who is Martha section here? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, um, Martha's uh, currently a project manager with a company called uh, Balnuttle, and uh, I've been working on projects in Antarctica and the Falkland Islands in recent years. Uh, Martha, as you say, studied at uh, Edinburgh University a long, long time ago. <laughs> Scared to remember how many years ago, I think about 27 years ago now. And uh, in those days, it was quite tough to get some get the, the type of work that I wanted to do, working for a contractor and building things. That's what interested me when I left university. Uh, so I headed off to work for British Steel for a few years, doing some structural marketing work. Um, they, they put us on a really good uh, graduate training programme and every now and again they'd, they'd let us out of the office to do some um, visits to steel fabricators and uh, run small construction projects or help run small construction uh, projects out in site. And it was after I um, helped with one of those construction projects that I realised that um, that's definitely what I wanted to do with my career. And uh, I didn't last much longer when I went back to the office. <laughs> I started reapplying for the jobs that I had applied for after university. Uh, thankfully, um, I got a, got a uh, site engineer's role with one of the big main contractors in the UK. Um, and I've worked with um, contracting firms ever since. Uh, uh, the two or three that I've worked for in, in the UK and I also went across to New Zealand for um, for four years and worked for a company over there as well doing some big infrastructure projects. I do like going to see new places although as I get older I like being at home as well <laughs> so the few years in New Zealand were great. Um, I've managed to do some sailing around America so when the chance to um, when BAM uh, got involved with our client and the partnership with British Antarctic Survey and I saw that there was a potential opportunity to get involved in the in the projects out in Antarctica. I thought, well, if I don't ask, I'll never know. So, so I asked, and uh, um, it's it's great, really, that um, we're able to share what we've done, and people have have got that interest, and we're able to tell them more about it. Well, rightfully so. It's everything that we hear about the project is just wildly interesting. Even even the smallest things become massive in that environment but that was one of the the first things that i was really thinking when we when we spoke um last week is is this something where everyone on site including yourself did raise their hand and say yeah i'd love to spend half of my life for the next five years or so or more um in antarctica and is it a hand raising thing or is it hey, we need our best and our brightest, and you signed up for this job, so you're going to Antarctica. A good question. Um, nobody's <laughs> ever asked me that before, actually. <laughs> Let me put my thinking cap on. Uh, so so I was um, involved as a project manager for um, one of the schemes that BAM works with. Um, Ramble are our technical advisors, are, are the client's technical advisor in British Antarctic. Um, survey are the client and BAM are the construction partner. So there was like a 10-year framework and rather a wharf, which was a new wharf for the new polar research ships, the Sir David Attenborough, was the project that I was the project manager for. Um, there was some other schemes um, that happened uh, around about the same time in Bird Island and South Georgia, uh, King Edward Point. Um, and uh, how did we pick the team? So in terms of the staff members, so project managers, uh, QSs, um, site engineers, etc., uh, generally people tend to put, put their hands up. 
um, and volunteer. And there was kind of a big, there was a bit of a uh, internal, um, you know, intranet adverts and things to to um, and communications about attracting or you know letting people know that they could if, to put their hand up as they were interested. Um, and actually, I say that for staff, but this, but the same thing for for the people working out in the field as well. Um, you know, I, I regularly get emails from uh, individual welders or uh, people that have seen the projects um, in social media, asking how they can get involved, and depending depending on their background um, and how early they would need to get involved in the projects, and I, I put them in the right in, in touch with the right people, either our project directors um, and divisional managers or uh, maybe the foreman if it's if it's somebody that wants to be involved in the construction of the works there's there's no localized trade contractors in antarctica to hire so you got to ship everybody over right <laughs> where that 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 kind of it becomes interesting because then you're you're sourcing from all over the uk right you're sourcing from people who are reaching out to you and really do have the ability to get the best and the brightest and the team that work, really works together. And I definitely want to touch on that camaraderie in a minute um, and living and working together for how many months is fairly rare for a construction project where you don't go home, right? You go to the dining hall with everyone, but maybe um, we can, we can inform the listeners a little bit. I just realized that you are very knowledgeable in this project and it has been like my reading obsession in terms of the industry for like the past five months. So I'm, I'm fairly familiar, but maybe a brief description of at least um, the larger job site that, that you work on and the reason it's being expanded um, for the listeners and just a little description of the project. Yes, uh, for, for sure. That's no problem. Um, well, the client, British Antarctic Survey, decided to commission um, a new ship. That ship is called the Sir David Attenborough. Uh, and actually, it's just left London uh, recently to set sail for its first uh, visit to Antarctica. So I'll be very pleased when it's uh, tied up against the, the, the new wharf. You didn't, um, you didn't want to go with it? Of it out there for the first time. Take the trip? I'd love to have gone with it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm uh, fully uh, busy now on the on the new project uh, in the Falkland Islands, but um, it was great to see the ship leave. And um, although I'm not involved in in that ship project at all, um, uh, for for the last well many years actually, um, it's been undergoing uh, sea trials once it was finished and it was launched a couple of years ago, and uh, quite a significant um, procurement exercise for Bass. And they've managed that all um, successfully, and the new ship's now in its way, which is which is great to see. Um, so that one ship, that strategy now that the client um, Bass British Antarctic Survey, that one ship replaces the two older ships that are um, are are no longer serving uh, the British um, bases in Antarctica. Those two ships were the Shackleton um, and the um, James Clark Ross. So the, so the new ship, because it's bigger, it's quite significantly bigger than the older ships, um, it needed uh, a wharf that was deeper um, and, and longer to be able to berth when it got to the main uh, research station and the main, the main hub for British, and indeed lots of other countries pass through uh, Rotherham as well on the way to elsewhere in Antarctica. 
So uh, BAM, I was involved for projects for about three years. Um, and the early things that we had to do was look at all the um, option assessments of how we would, um, where we would build um, this new wharf about, along with Rambo, the technical advisor. And we had all sorts of ideas about extending the existing wharf, because that's kind of naturally what, what you'd be led to maybe think about first. Uh, building a new one somewhere completely different, um, you know, lo locally to, to the station. Um, and actually, the, the option that we all came up and agreed with collaboratively together was to dismantle the existing wharf um, and build a new one um, further out into the water. So it was deeper for the deeper draft of the new ship um, and at a bit of an angle um, and a longer a longer structure than what had been there before. Um, and that was the project then that we all got involved with to deliver. So we had to pr price all that up and design it. and. Um, and do all the uh, procurement and the logistics and the shipping and the and the big uh, advantage that we had was because of the time scale of the project um it was a two season project so as you said there the seasons are about six to seven months the people that go in first and leave last would would be there for seven six to seven months generally um and and the staff team that planned it all together um from BAM and we had a lot of input from Rambo and Bass and um, a lot of our supply chain as well. Uh, that that small BAM staff team then went out to deliver the project with about, um, it was about 50 odd, 53 of us I think went went the first year to, to work on the wharf project. So we put a lot of pressure on ourselves because we were going to dismantle the wharf. <laughs> so, so our big uh, charter ship went in. Uh, we offloaded about four and a half thousand tons of equipment and plant and materials and everything. Um, it was it was a it was a one off. It was the first time I'd ever done it anyway. That that year leading up to the starting line, um, we put all this effort in. And we got every, we got everything there, and we got everybody there safely as well. With obviously a lot of um, BAS support because the client takes care of all the flights and all the accommodation needs and everything and feeding us. They feed us, they look after us, they get us there safely and then hopefully we bring what, what we're good at to the table and, and uh, run the construction projects and then um, it's, it's been a successful few seasons so far. We, um, we took a few more people out the second season and we started on a project which I've not mentioned yet and that was to build a new um, operations building. Uh, so I'm I'm not involved in that. I'm not the project manager, but um, some of my colleagues in BAM are running with that. And we did all the groundworks um, for the building on the second season of the wharf to try to um, utilise the resources and get get that done as efficiently as possible. And then we finished the new wharf. Uh, we brought the ship in with all the materials for the next five seasons' work to put the new building up. And then we loaded all the wharf equipment that was no longer needed, like the long reach excavators and things. And then the ship sailed off. And then and then we all uh, gave ourselves yep. a pat on the back. <laughs> and for everyone listening, this is a proper barge like you would see in the middle of the Indian Ocean. This isn't like a small boat unloading some boxes, right? And one of the things I found very interesting is one, this is a research facility that where we're studying Antarctica, climate change, you know, and global change that affects all of us. But one, and I would love to dive into 
the logistics of all of this and the very specific kind of variances that that you run into. But one is that I, in the background that I have, would have never thought of, and that's the cleaning and sanitation of all the equipment coming into Antarctica and not wanting to bring any outside plant life or anything of that nature, which is was a huge, and I'll let you dive into it, it seemed like a huge undertaking when everything had to be meticulously clean before it got on a barge, after it got on a barge in negative weather, right? It's not like we're washing the car in the driveway in the summer or something (laughs) like that, right? So talk to me a little about um, all the variants reasons, and we can always go into the crowd pleaser that is the orca whales keeping you from diving in certain months of the, the year, which I would love to hear about. But talk about some of the unique um, logistical challenges that, that come with working in a place that, that is it's that crude and environment. Yeah, well, I suppose the, um, the crux of it is, is that you need to take absolutely everything with you and you've limited options. You, it's not a case that you don't have any options to bring anything later because you have bass ships coming in um, uh, uh, fairly infrequently, maybe just once or twice a season. Um, so really you have to plan to take absolutely everything with you from the 300 tonne crawler crane to the enough um, protective equipment, you know, gloves and boots and wellies, uh, Wellington boots and uh, all the all the slings and the lifting equipment and all the steel work and the sheet piles and the excavators and the dump trucks and uh, everything in between. All this, all the spares um, for all the plant because you're going to have to take your own fitters to look after all that plant for for many seasons to come. Um, so you have to plan to take all that with you. That was my view. Um, and if you forgot anything, then then it wasn't. On purpose, you hadn't you hadn't tried to schedule anything to come in later and be smarter. Right. And in some ways, looking looking back, and I certainly didn't think this at the time, but looking back, um, we had one big deadline that that ship was leaving, and everything had to be on it. So it was it was easy to communicate that to people and say that's when the dead deadline is. That's when the ship's going to come to uh, Teesport, which is in the north of England, and um, and then we're going to load the ship with the logistics and the shipping company that we worked with, uh, Transglobal Projects, and then that ship's going to go off to Antarctica. Of course, the detail around all that was quite significant. So all the different things that we had to order had different lead-in times, came from different suppliers. Uh, What we did was we we planned uh, with the company that we worked with on on the ports and the logistics that we'd have a big holding yard um, at Teesport. And we basically set ourselves up with those companies to work with us. So we had like specialist packers and um, and the people that chartered the ship. And then the people you touched on it there a minute ago, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in detail on the um, biosecurity of all the equipment to make sure that we didn't take any um, uh, uh, insects or, or um, uh, weeds or anything, seeds into Antarctica. Um, and that we cleaned everything um, really, really well, so it was spotless before it went on the ship. And that included cleaning the ship as well, because you um, you had to make sure that, that that you didn't transfer anything through through that risk at the same time. 
don't so, want to be the, the group that takes out an entire penguin population because you brought some strange insect over. <laughs> certainly not, no. Right. Uh, bass have very strict biosecurity rules. Um, we basically said, well, we follow the, the bass rules. Um, and we did actually take some equipment down for bass as well. We had audits with the client. Um, and the way, the, way that we, the way that we managed it um, through, through working with our, um, our partner um, on the logistics and the, and the shipping was that they actually brought some experts in from Australia because they have um, very high standards in terms of biosecurity as well. Um, and we gave ourselves a 10 week period in T-Sport where everything was scheduled um, to come through the gates, go into a holding yard, um, be cleaned to, to very high standard um, and then be put in a, a quarantine area before it was loaded onto the ship. That sounds all quite easy when you say it quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually just thinking myself, like she's making this sound like, oh yeah, we just, we just pack up the boat, you know, going on a weekend car ride with the family. We pack everything up. Um, but this is also going on a, what, 9,000 mile voyage to Antarctica from the UK, right? So it's, yeah, it's just 9,000 miles. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Well, what we realised, or what I certainly realised, was that the shipping world is a different world, um, different industry to civil engineering, and how we plan our projects. It's not necessarily how the the shipping industry works. So that so that was a big learning curve as well that we've we learned a lot from, and we've and we've used in our planning as we go forward. And we got we got a lot of um, experience from the bass team and the sh and the shipping people from bass as well to help us with all of that. Um, we had four and a half thousand tons of equipment, and it took up. I think from memory about 12,000 um, cube volume on the ship. Uh, the ship was jam-packed. Uh, we couldn't have got any more on <laughs> if we tried, which which meant that it all needed to be packed really, really careful so that we didn't have any wasted space because there was no wasted space to be had. And there wasn't really anything that you could leave behind in the plan. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to deliver the job. Um, hopefully as efficiently as we did um, and in the, in that scheduling as you mentioned there all the scheduling of how long the ship would take um, to get to Antarctica that was really important as well uh, because on the logistics side of things we had to um, we had to work closely with Bass because their Shackleton ship which was um, um, in service at the time that was used as the um, icebreaker and in inverted commas um, to basically clear the ice pack when it got to that part um, uh, of the journey, so that so that it was an F-class vessel that BAM and our um, supply chain uh, chartered to take all our equipment down there, and it didn't have the same um, uh, capabilities in breaking through the ice, so we needed to have the bash ship ahead of it. And then it was such a big vessel. I'll always remember the evening that it arrived. I was so relieved. <laughs> um, that we actually um, Bass used their ship to help manoeuvre our big um, uh, chartered ship onto the wharf because the wharf was only about um, the old wharf was about 60 metres long um, and it was quite a significant overhang and quite quite tight um, manoeuvring to get the charter ship into place. Um, but it was great to finally see it in place and that was almost then. Well, maybe I was going to say it was maybe then I felt like we were at the starting line, but. Maybe after all the equipment and things were offloaded, that took 
um, 12 days from memory. Once it was all offloaded, I felt like we were at the, the next, the new starting line, and we could get on with what we were there to do. It all has to come off again when you're packing it that tight, which is... Yes, yeah. And, and you guys yeah, and did big, a lot of build, uh, pre-built fabricated sections as well, correct? Where it's like build it before you build it kind of thing. And all of that had to come off, I'm sure, in a certain order, in a certain logistical way and go in a certain place. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that going on um, to try and make sure that we we followed the plan. We had we had a lot of digital models and, excuse me, 4G programs and things um, to to build it, as you say, the phrase is build it before you build it. Um, we even went as far as putting the frames together with our um, steelwork uh, fabricator that we worked with, a company called Forties in the south of England. And we sent some of our team from Banff, who were going to be responsible for erecting the steel, down to work with one of the fabricators and, and the business down there. That, that uh, fabricator as an individual actually came out to Antarctica as part of our team so so uh, we tried to really send as strong a team as possible to make sure we we met the program um, and we put the guys put all the frames together to make sure that everything um, worked and that we wouldn't have any issues and the vast majority of it I think there might have been some very minor things but the vast majority of it worked when we put it all together in the south of England there was some um, there was some comments from local businesses round about that yard that sort of said, what's happening over there? What's all that steelwork? And uh, we were building it upside down because the, I don't know if you've picked up from the information you've seen so far, but the, one of the challenges of the new wharf is it's built on a really steep um, slope underwater. So if you can imagine the front of the port, uh, sorry, the front of the wharf is a lot, uh, when you build it on land is a, is a lot higher or a lot deeper than them. Um, than the back the back side of the of the new structure so we built it upside down to make it easier so uh, when people were asked locally what's happening over there and the answer they got was oh it's a it's a new war for antarctica upside down in southampton but it made sense to us um and uh, it was really time and effort well spent uh, and we had a we had uh, a really proud um, of everyone that was involved in the project uh, and um, and the people from the supply chain that integrated and worked really well hand in hand with BAM. I don't think you could tell who were direct BAM employees and who worked for other companies at times. As you say, we all ate breakfast together. We all had lunch, dinner, social time. It's, uh, it's quite an experience. Yeah, everyone being under the, the same roof is is something that I would love to dig into and just in terms of that camaraderie and if it in like helps or hurts the the construction environment. But before we jump there, you mentioned something um, and I think about kind of human nature in construction planning, right? A lot of the time where we have major milestones. We have to hit them for clients, but because we're humans and we're sneaky and that's how our brain works, right? We're building float into our schedule. We're looking at a milestone pretty soft because, you know, nothing catastrophic is going to happen if we don't hit it by five days. But in an environment where that boat leaves, it's not a soft milestone. It's like it's gone and you're done or you're not done. Do you think being in that type of environment was new to a lot of people? Do you think 
it was very positive in terms of what you've seen in the past when it comes to planning where we don't we don't get to play the game anymore right we're not playing the float game this is what it is and was there more of a drive to hit milestones in that in that community of workers just because they couldn't play the mental game of, of adding float to milestones and things of that nature um how, how would i explain this uh i think um, what i mentioned at the when we started talking uh, just now was around the collaborative partnership mm -hmm. with the clients and uh and i i really i really do mean that it was it was it was really collaborative and and sharing of the risk uh, between the most relevant parties was all managed really well uh, so we had uh, Bass, the client, back in the UK, uh, the, the project management team. And we also had Bass, the client, the people running the station and all the interfaces with them as well. Um, and what we did in the in the planning leading up to going to site and agreeing our programmes and things was um, uh, the, uh, Bass uh, took myself and our planner and, uh, and two other colleagues um, uh, to Antarctica the year before uh, the project was going to start so when we were still fairly early on in our our uh, planning and scheduling and things and they they took us out to site for a week so um you know in any project usually people say what's the first thing you're going to do you're going to go and have a look at the site and I'd, i didn't think we'd have the opportunity to do that but we did uh, thankfully because everyone had the foresight to to plan it and arrange it and when we went out there and subsequently when we came back uh, our planner uh, chris um and the rest of the team, myself, we looked and we said, right, what are the risks that um, time-wise that we need to uh, we need to build into the programme? So I'm going to test my memory here now because it's a couple of years ago. But we had five big risks that we put into the programme on TRA, Time Risk Allowance. And one was around flights because the wharf is right beside a um, 900 metre long runway uh, that there's there's a really big interface actually for for everyone working on the site and lifting these big sort of 45 50 ton frames um, and making sure that that's all managed with the air operations then we had time risk for any downtime um if the leopard seals and the orcas came around because we couldn't be working in the water or diving um operations couldn't be happening uh, we had a uh, wind and weather uh, we had icebergs uh, pretty significant risk of the structure when it was in its temporary state. Some of these icebergs, and you know, almost didn't believe it myself until I saw some of them, they, they can be as big as football pitches. Now, that size iceberg, thankfully, doesn't come anywhere near the wharf, but some of the ones that you see coming and uh, muddling with your steelwork when it's still in a partial state of install, um, that, that's a big risk. Um, and I can't remember the fifth one. <laughs> Is that a is that a, a moment where there's really nothing you can do besides hope and pray that it doesn't float on over to your your roughed in wharf? Or was there something that Bass was doing where they could kind of guide them away? Tell me a little about that. It was just you stood on the side, st stood on the shore and just crossed your fingers? Well, it was quite a low risk of anything actually happening, but it would have been really big significance if it had happened. Most of the big ones get ground out because they hit they hit the, the bottom long before they got to the, the shallows that we were building 
um, or at least where we were based. As I say, it dropped off fair, fairly quickly um, as, as you went out to the front of the new structure. Uh, we, we tried to plan the, around the ice risk as much as possible. Like we, we planned in um, the sea ice comes in. So because it was a two season project, we really had to do some quite uh, particular things to protect the the temporary structure during the seasons because all the sea ice came in and all those all that loading went onto the um, uh, the half structure that we built. Uh, so we put um, like temporary. We used the sheets, the sheet piles from the old wharf, and we made like temporary um, ice shields. We called them, and we placed them along along the front of the half finished structure to protect that from the ice loading. Um, so we we tried to use all our engineering judgment where we could to protect it. But there was always that risk that you mentioned that, yeah, was a risk if something was going to hit it and hit it in the, at the wrong angle at the wrong time that um, you could only really assess what you would do about that after it happened because each or every situation would have been unique. Right. And then I'll be remorse to the listeners if we don't get to elaborate on the leopard seals and orcas being in the water. Meaning, was this a specific season where it was breeding season or or migration season where I also saw all your divers are, the majority of them were in steel cages in the water because of this? Or tell us a little about that. Uh, so we worked with a company um, that Balm worked with a lot in the UK called Ocean Kinetics. We had five divers, uh, maybe six the second season we had down in sight with us. And they had to get involved with the dismantling of the old wharf, and and the install and the um, and the fitting and installation of, of the new structure as well. Um, the cage that you've maybe seen, um, the dive cage that you've maybe seen on uh, photographs or videos and things, that was, um, if you like, in emergency planning because in in all the dive plans that we that we did, we we didn't plan day to day routinely for people to to be in that cage because that would have been very restrictive. But um, bass do a lot of diving themselves um, around the station for science uh, experiments. So we spoke with um, the operations managers and the people um, responsible for the bass diving activities, along with the um, the managers um, from the um, from the diving company they were worked with. And, I, and our engineers and we put a plan together about how we would be able to carry the works out safely. So we had, um, for start at the beginning, we had, uh, um, I think we used to call it something like steel watch, <laughs> test my memory now, but we had to have a period of time where, and this was all written into our formal procedures that were signed off before we started. We, we had somebody on constant watch for a set period of time before our divers went in the water. And if they got the thumbs up and the OK, then, then they continue with the work. Then we had a spotter all the time when somebody was in the water. And uh, if if a predatory mammal was seen, then the diver would, would come out the water. Now, in many occasions, that would be OK just to come out. Um, and the majority of occasions, sorry, it would be quite simple just to come out under normal circumstances. But occasionally, um, and uh, I know we, we, we had this situation at least once where um, it was easier um, to bring somebody out. Um, so we used to use the, the, the crane uh, and the basket, uh, the, the dive cage that you talked about would always be on standby. We could lower the, the um, 
dive cage into the water and uh, bring somebody to the to the surface and make sure that they were um, safe away from any predatory movement of any of the predatory mammals. And we used to work really well with the bass teams as well. You know, you might have bass divers at the north of the station and we, we would be down the south of the station working on the construction site and the dive teams between bass and bam together would radio each other. They might spot a leopard seal at the top end of the station, but it was sitting on a an ice floe, an iceberg, and it wasn't moving. So keep keep eyes on it, and that meant that we could continue and get the most out of our um, our time available to be doing the works. So um, it was very sort of proactive, collaborative between between the two dive teams, and they spoke to each other regularly. Um, and, yeah, again, uh, you've, yeah, done, you've done a great job of describing this like it's not one of the crazier things <laughs> on this show. Um, but I also just, I'm, I'm thinking you probably left most of the divers out of that conversation because if I was in the water and I just heard another guy being like, well, he seems friendly enough. He just, he's just hanging out. I'd be like, no, no, I'm getting out of here. We're not taking no. your word for it. But no, I saw, um, saw too many pictures and heard too many stories that we didn't take any risks there. Uh, yeah. That was my main thing. My, my big task was just to make sure we got home, everybody home safely at the end of the season. So um, on the flip side of that and, uh, you know, the seriousness that surrounds that, um, the team that were, especially the team that were working down at the kind of work front on the on the new structure, they have some, you know, amazing experiences of the wildlife that they've seen uh, during the project. I think every time somebody shouted Orca, I was always walking back to the office and not sure I saw one uh, anywhere near up close to this day, but I've seen plenty of photos and plenty of videos um, from others, so it's good. Yeah, and I mean that's it, it's such a it's such a unique experience. I mean, for you, I'm sure when you were at British Steel or you were in the infancy of your career, you were not thinking like, oh, I'm going to have a very in-depth knowledge of Antarctica, and in fact, I'm going to visit this place more than you know 10 times in my life um was that a sentiment that that kept i guess morale or kept the 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 people there really excited about being there i mean like like you know i'm an avid avid snow sports skier that would be a dream for me if they said we'll we'll pay you to go work in antarctica for six months right um and there's a lot of different groups of people. The people that work for Bass are, are a different breed, I'm sure, than some of the ladies and gentlemen you brought in. And what was what was kind of the overarching connector? Just the fact that there was camaraderie because you were all you were all stuck there, or <laughs> was it was it more the, the mission in terms of kind of global warming research and and having pride in that as well? Bless you. Uh I think generally everyone got on well, but um, as I often said, if you put um, a sort of 50, 60 strong construction team um, in any town in the UK, they wouldn't naturally want to socialise with every, everyone in the town. And we, we were very conscious that, that Rothera is home to, um, especially the people that are there over winter. Bass have maybe up to about 20 people that keep the station. Um, taken over over the winter and then I think the population from Bass maybe goes up to about 70, 80 during the summer. So as people's homes, um, 
Well, I guess from my point of view, it was our, it was our home too, and so uh, we needed to put a lot of effort and and the Bass team particularly because uh, she need to acknowledge because we were very um, focused on planning all the construction works uh, and Bass took the lead, but we obviously inputted to it of um, of how we would plan the sort of non-construction aspects. Um, so. We had things like catering plans, and you might think, oh, that, that sounds a bit extreme. But um, we had to think about where everybody was going to be fed, and, and that was actually down in the boat shed. Bass gave us their boat shed for the seasons uh, because it was right on the work front, and, and all the food was brought down there for um, for lunch lunchtime and um, breaks and things. Um, so we had catering plans that Bass put together and we worked on. We had um, recreation plans because, um, as you touched on there, being a snow sports fan, uh, I don't know if I'll, uh, if it's a good thing to tell you, I got to ski uh, in Antarctica and I'm, I'm a big ski fan, so that, that was a fantastic day. Um, there was a people snowboarding, um, <laughs> uh, there was boat trips, um, there was pool competitions and dart competitions and a table tennis competition um, and a lot of time and effort uh, went into considering things. Um, the second season, the station leader from Bass was a qualified mountaineer and he put a lot of personal time, Mike Bryan, into uh, taking both Bass people and BAM as well um, up the kind of local ridge area, Reptile Ridge it was called, and uh, the guys that did that came back absolutely buzzing. Well, most of them did. Some of them were absolutely knackered as well, but most of them came back buzzing about how great it was to do this mountaineering. And I think, I think in the second season, some of them were were um, uh, uh, around the crevasse, the crevasses as well. Again, with Mike, the um, mountaineer. So uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of time put into it because there's all sorts in in the same at home. There's all sorts of personalities and all sorts of people that need to mix together um, and some days you know the sky's blue and the sun's shining and everything's great and you've just had your Christmas dinner and everything's well with the world um, and then as the weeks go on you get you know one day it starts to turn a little bit bad and then without realizing a couple of days you get bad weather you know and uh, and before you know it six or seven days a week's really bad weather and you can hardly sort of stand up straight in the blizzards that's coming in your face and you know it's time to be out of there and it's it's getting all that scheduling and timing right at the end of the season to make sure that you're packed up in time. Um, things are quite uh, dynamic I think is the best word to use in terms of, of work down there you know ships can come earlier can come later flights can be cancelled um, and indeed with all Covid you know the second season that we we're down down there and understandably um, uh, countries were closing their borders so Chile for example which was the route home was, was closing its border and things things were getting really difficult for the Bass operations team and it, and it was you know testament to all the work that they did that they got everybody home home safely any year but especially that 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 uh, 2020 year when we got home last June. Uh, right. Some of our team have just left recently Sorry, no, I was just going to say some of our team have left recently to go out to work on the building again, people that haven't been before. And I, I know them from projects, sort of old, old projects we've worked on together, you know, and, and they're really super excited and chuffed just now. And I said, that's great. And I says, but just remember when it gets really hard, 
because <laughs> yeah. it gets hard for all of us. We all we all have our bad days when we're over there. Um, just remember the bigger picture. I think you touched on it there a minute ago. You know, you, you're everybody's there for a different reason. You're not just there because you might be paid a little bit more money in Antarctica. Uh, everybody's got a real um, passion about delivering the project and uh, and it being successful. That's certainly what I witnessed. And uh, couldn't have asked for any more for the Bass team working round about us and um, and all the integration that was done between everyone. And I, I mean that really uh, genuinely. Uh, and always be really grateful for it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing thing that Bass is doing. It's an amazing thing that you guys are down there. Um, I think just just thinking about the... Right. We, we kind of touched on like, what do you ever thought that this is what you'd be doing? Right. And I'm sure that that is a sentiment that, you know, all of your from your dive team to, to your project team and the BAM team. Um, I know that I either heard or you told me that uh, a fairly large percentage of them all came back for season two. Right. So it's it's an experience that is rewarding enough but i'm very sure it it has its its dark gray days that the you know orca on the wharf is something that doesn't bring a smile to your face you're just like yeah i'm freezing i want to go to bed kind of thing so um is that is that why you guys did so so much in terms of recreation and getting people together and having meals together because i mean sitting in a research facility for six months, let alone year round, like those 20 people could, could definitely um, spur some, some dark times and, and not the most fun. Did you guys do anything to, to kind of manage people and see where they were at and how they were feeling? Did you ever have to kind of send people home, right? Where it's like, this is not the right environment for you. And, and it's not the fault of yours or ours or anyone else's. It just, this seemed great on paper kind of thing. Um, how, how did you yeah. manage that? I think we should have had you in our planning team because you've, you've captured everything there that needs to be considered for these projects. And um, we've learned so much about it. And uh, I guess it was fairly early on when I was involved and, and now that we've got teams going back now for the fourth sort of fifth seasons, fourth season, sorry, um, we're building on that every year. Uh, we do do a lot of, um, well, we, we do like what we call pre-deployment training where we bring everybody together in the UK, ev everyone in the BAM team and, and BAS, um, BAS kind of station management and project management join, join that as well. It's, it's residential. Uh, it's to let everyone know um, about the work side of things, but also about the um, the living arrangements and uh, and uh, um, all the challenges that you mentioned there. It is it is a real mental challenge when you're out there at times. You know, on on a lighter note, the the foreman supervisor, I think you might call him superintendent in the US, mm. often was heard, oh, "Don't don't speak to Martha before 10 a.m." <laughs> uh, <laughs> We, we all have our times where uh, some days are better than others. Uh, the guys were in like four four grown men in a bedroom uh, together, two bunk beds. You know, that, that's pretty tough. Uh, I, I shared a room with one other person for um, 
for the time that I was there. It wasn't quite quite so tough, but uh, the um, it's it's fairly tight conditions. So so you're trying your best to get on with everyone, but but we're all human, and I think that's that's what works. People just remembered that we were all human, and uh, when you you could tell quite easily when somebody was having a bad day, you know. One guy might have wanted the window open in the in the accommodation. One guy might have wanted it shut. That wouldn't that wouldn't cause much of a fuss at home. But it's amazing how quite small things can can blow up and become quite big issues quickly when everybody's under a lot of that sort of mental pressure. And uh, you know, some people didn't get out there at all. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly no criticism of anyone. But we had people in the team who got to Heathrow, the big main airport um, in London to start the journey and decided it wasn't for them. Um, we didn't have any ourselves, but I've heard of other examples in Bass where people got to Rothera, got back on the plane and said, no, it's not it's not for me. Um, and it doesn't work out for for everyone. Uh, uh, um, some some people take to it easier than others. Some people want to, to you know, engage in a lot of the activities. Uh, some people want to socialise and, 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 and enjoy a social aspect and uh, having a drink and playing pool at the weekend and some people want to keep themselves to themselves um, and have some quiet time maybe just watching a, a movie or a film and I, I think it's just appreciating that everybody kind of switches off um, in a different fashion and we we shouldn't expect everybody to want to do the same things and and run to organize schedules sometimes people just want to be left alone and it's quite hard to find that space to do that um, in a place um, in a, any of the stations. I'm sure rather it's just the same as any other ones on the continent as well. Yeah. Putting putting a bunch of grown people into uh, the equivalent of summer camp where they have to they have to deal and, and just just saying that, I mean I I think about the positive side of things, you know, where don't I don't know if this is the the correct term, but us Americans, we also we love cruise ships. You ever go on a cruise ship, everyone on the cruise ship is stuck together and they all, what I call, create single serving friendships where they're best mates for the next 10 days, right? Where they are just obsessed with each other and they act like they've known each other forever. But I'm sure there's a subsection of your company now that are do you see it when they get home? They're like, oh yeah, well we're we're part of the the Antarctica team. Like we went through this together, you know. And now now we're kind of this this subsection group that that knows what it's like and knows the hardships. Do you see any of that in a positive way? Probably not in a negative way. It's just storytelling and things of that nature, right? But um, have you seen that where it's part of your company is like the the elite section. I'm not sure we'd ever describe ourselves as the cool kids, but um, but uh, I'm maybe I'm maybe biased, but I think there's been some strong bonds formed there from the people that worked on these projects, and they'll always be there. Um, I can see little things on social media. Um, not involved a lot, but I can see little things where, you know, some of the team are leaving this season and people that are not going are, you know, wishing them all the best and safe travels and things. And uh, even between um, fragments of the Bass team and BAM as well, you know, it might be that that people maybe from particular uh, discipline backgrounds, you know, the mechanics, for example, um, 
uh, might have formed some good bonds and keep in contact um, and people people that have worked on different parts of the station together um, there's 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 lots there's definitely been lots of friendships uh, formed and and kind of special working relationships as well uh, and I think you know for all the difficulties that we have I think when I when I said to myself what do you want out of this Martha I said I wanted to get everybody home safely at the end I wanted everyone to be glad that they'd taken part even even the ones that didn't want to go back and I, I think the majority of people would say that um, and I also wanted to make sure that we did a really good job for Bass well for for the obvious reasons but but also so that we could continue to do more of this work together and other young people in our business would get the chance to experience uh, what we had seen um, because uh, I just think it's absolutely fantastic and uh, I've I've, uh, I'm, I'm at the sort of older uh, end of our <laughs> age-wise now in some of our uh, demographic and the people that go and work in these projects. But this year we've got quite a young team going out to, to manage the building projects uh, staff-wise. Uh, and I think it's fantastic. Uh, I met them all a few weeks ago just ahead of their pre-deployment training. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do each season is um, kind of build on what we've learned so far and pass it on to the the next teams that are getting involved. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's amazing work. It's it's life-changing, not only for everyone working on it, but the research facility is is changing lives all over the world, right? What happens in Antarctica affects places like New Orleans and, and other climates and places that we, we deal with every day here in the States and all over the world. But I know um, we're coming up on time here, but I wanted to ask you, when you had mentioned... Um, the shipping vessel coming you you kind of had a moment where you're like i'll never forget that moment like the i don't know if it was just the pure stress relief like the euphoric stress relief that it actually arrived but if you wouldn't mind or if you if you have one that you've thought of what is throughout all of the seasons you've done this is there a specific story or moment where you were kind of just standing there and had like a oh my God, moment, or like, this is real life. This is life-changing. This is really cool that that I've gotten to have this story in my life story. And that's a pretty loaded question, oh. so I apologize. <laughs> I didn't email you that one prior to this, right? <laughs> no, no, no problem. I think in all honesty, and I'm not just saying this because it's the easy answer, the, um, the day that the cargo ship was unloaded, Find the last cargo was offloaded and uh, and sailed off. Um, I think any anyone that was standing anywhere near me saw the uh, uh, <laughs> maybe the sense of relief, but uh, that all the planning had come together and everything had worked out. And I knew that there was a lot of hard work for our team ahead of us and and Bass working with us. Um, but that genuinely was um, a real significant moment for me because I had been involved with um, the rest of the staff back in Cambridge, you know, and, and we all kind of came to the job with different, we all came to site with a different amount of awareness of what had come before in the UK to get to that point. Some people turned up and that was their kind of, their pre-deployment was the first taste of what we're going to be doing. And other people had been involved, I'd probably been involved for about a year and a half. And some of my colleagues, project engineers and people had even been involved in the tender. So 
maybe for two, two and a half years before we got to site. Um, and the other, the other really um, a, a moment that I'll always remember um, is actually the, the day that the uh, first ship burst on the new wharf when it was finished. Uh, uh, so we, we finished a few days ahead of schedule and the JCR, the James Clark Ross uh, ship, came in to take uh, the first members of our team across the Falklands uh, to start heading home. Uh, and it was also my birthday, so it was an absolute brilliant day. I'll always remember the 5th of April 2020. <laughs> That's amazing. And you said the, the new ship comes in a couple of months for its first birth on the new wharf? Uh, to be honest, um, maybe I, sh I should have checked that ahead of this podcast. I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with the detailed itinerary, but it generally takes about a month to sail down to Antarctica. And I think it's heading to maybe some of the other uh, research stations first and then across to Rothera. And will you be back down there? <laughs> uh, I'd like to say that I will be back at some stage. There's no immediate plans. Uh, I've got a full time job to keep me busy. Uh, Bam are working on a, a new port just now in the uh, planning for a new port in the Falklands. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of similarities and a lot of um, joined up thinking with what we've done in Rothera. It's a similar part of the world to uh, logistics um uh recruitment all these all these things have some alignment um and uh i would imagine that sometime in the future yeah yeah i'll be back but there's there's uh, plenty of people involved in the for the time being yeah well i i, I definitely want to thank you for coming on and now you have the ability to go back to all those jobs that said early on that you didn't have enough experience and tell them that you're basically the most experienced PM for, for Arctic construction and no, not at all. <laughs> see, see how that, see how that goes. But um, I truly want to thank you for, for jumping on. Um, it's, I know we've kind of been chatting back and forth for months now, but it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and I, I hope we get to chat again. Yeah, I look forward to it, Noah. And um, yeah, thanks very much for uh, your interest in the projects. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been great to think back on it because it has been a couple of years, so you've brought back a lot of memories to me personally. And um, uh, it's been great to share that with with your listeners. Thank you. Hopefully, good ones as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All good. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you. you so much, and we'll talk soon.